Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. It's a great pleasure to be able to kick off year two of FIA Speaks with the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Chairman Heath Tarver. Welcome, Chairman Tarver, to FIA Speaks. Thank you so much for having me, Walt. It's great to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have Chairman Tarbert, who began as chair of the CFTC about a year ago on July 15th of 2019, after a distinguished career most recently at the Treasury Department here in the United States as Assistant Secretary of International Markets. He's also served on the Senate Banking Committee as a lead financial services partner in private practice, and even as a clerk on the D.C. Court of Appeals. He's got one of the most qualified CFTC chairman of our time with his background having a JD, a CPA, a CFA, and even a DPhil, which I didn't know about, which is Oxford's equivalent to a PhD. So Dr. Tarbert, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, please call me Heath Walt, uh, and, and, and no, the, the honor is entirely mine, and, and every day is a challenge as CFTC chairman. I'm honored and humbled to have the position. Well, let us start with the elephant on the Zoom call. Um, Every chairman, and I think we've talked about this, Keith, Heath, privately, about having an unexpected intervening event that diverts each chairman away from their normal agenda. And boy, you have a doozy. Uh, The coronavirus has wreaked havoc on our economy and markets and dramatically changed how the American workforce engages in commerce and the global workforce for that matter. Uh, but what is your view on our markets? I just saw that your, your customer funds data came out today and an incredible increase on how many people are utilizing our markets and how much margin is being held uh, by CCPs and exchanges around uh, the globe. So what is your view on how our markets have held up during the crisis? Yeah, well, the good news is that we really have a great story to tell, certainly thus far. Um, our markets have been incredibly resilient. I wrote a piece back in the Wall Street Journal maybe a month or so ago explaining that this was not 2008, uh, particularly with respect to the derivatives markets. In 2008, there was a concern, particularly, particularly on that part of the derivatives markets that we didn't regulate at that time, the uncleared bilateral OTC markets, that it was amplifying systemic risk. Well, I can tell you without a doubt that Today, both our exchange-traded markets and cleared markets, as well as the the OTC non-cleared markets, have acted as shock absorbers for systemic risk. Uh, And and they are really bearing the brunt of a lot of the concerns that we have. Another thing that is different, I think, is that in 2008, um, the, the issues emanated from the financial sector into the real economy. Now we have very much the opposite. We have the real economy in a very historic health crisis that has led to an economic crisis, and that is being reflected in our financial markets, and people are using our financial markets to hedge these risks. 
And so when this happened, and you're exactly right, uh, you know, we, we obviously had a policy agenda coming into this. It's very ambitious, and we'll talk about that a little later probably. But, but obviously the question for a CFTC chairman is always, what is the highest and best use of the CFTC at a given point in time, considering our mission, which is to promote the, the integrity, resilience, and vibrancy of the U.S. derivatives markets through sound regulation. And that the key word during this situation has been resilience. And so what we did was we quickly pivoted the agency's resources to take the crisis head on. Um, and so we really looked at a few major objectives. First was monitoring our derivatives markets and their participants so we knew exactly what was going on. Second, we wanted to make sure that we promoted orderly and liquid markets despite what was happening around us. And in order to do that, we responded swiftly with targeted practical relief. And then finally, we wanted to communicate consistently and transparency, transparently with all stakeholders. And of course, one of our major stakeholders are all the members of FIA. And so that was really the focus. But during this period, our markets have held up quite well. Um, and so right now, things have mostly stabilized from where we were a month ago, but we're obviously continuing to be nimble and to be as responsive as possible, depending on what happens. Well, and you're not a, only a, a policymaker overseeing, you know, the, the oversight of the marketplace, but you're also the CEO of a, you know, 500, 600 person company, the CFTC, uh, who's dealing with the remoteness of the coronavirus as all of us are. In fact, we're doing this podcast from our home offices um, together. So, you know, how has the CFTC uh, dealt with this work from home standpoint from a regulatory standpoint? I'm just curious how a regulatory agency conducts its business remotely. No, it's a great question, and, and you're exactly right. And, and you you served as the acting head of the agency during your period. And so you're, you're chairman of the agency, but you're also the chief executive. So you wear the two hats. The chairman, I think, focuses on the agenda, the policy agenda of the commission itself, the five-member body. But then the chief executive role deals with our employee base. And now when you include contractors, many of whom spend years at the CFTC, we're about a thousand personnel, about 700 full-time and a thousand uh, total when we include the contractors. So it has been a challenge to, to sort of move the agency uh, to continuing to pursue its mission. And I would argue more than ever now, but doing so in a remote fashion. The good news is that we were able to do some testing to confirm our ability to work remote. Um, and once we tested the system, we moved quickly to agency-wide telework footing. So basically, it's been a seamless process and, and pretty much the entire agency, 99% of us are working remotely. Um, and so like other agencies, we're starting to talk about what it looks like to transition back to an in-the-office work environment. But, but ultimately right now, not only are we continuing to work remotely, but, but arguably we're more productive than ever before because we, we're facing this crisis. And not only the CFTC staff, but you also uh, deliberate among a bipartisan commission, the actual CFTC, the commission part. Um, and, and so that is also interesting. And you're having to adjust the way you typically do things by holding uh, video meetings of the commission, open meetings. Um, has that been a challenge? Because I know commissions oftentimes they're collaborative. You, you talk 
uh, with the different commissioners to gain their opinion and to understand their objectives. And um, so has remote working impeded that in any way? There's no substitute, I think, for sort of the face-to-face real-world environment. But once we were able to ensure that we could successfully hold meetings telephonically, we were able to reschedule some meetings. And one of the things I also read in a, in a sort of a crisis leadership book is that in times of, of turmoil, more communication, all things being equal, is better. So we have, are having more and more meetings now between and among the commissioners than we had even, even during regular times. Um, I am also talking with each commissioner one-on-one every week. Uh, And so while we're not able to sit together in a face-to-face environment, I've actually increased the amount of time I'm trying to spend with commissioners and more importantly, the frequency. So we're actually talking arguably a lot more than we've we've spoken before. um, And we're getting things done remotely. Uh, We're also moving things through the seriatim process, but all things being equal, Wherever possible, I continue to, to, to aim to do the agency's uh, business in public. So we just had a, a meeting earlier this month, an open meeting, and we're going to have another one at the or sorry, in April, and then we're going to have another one at the end of this month, and that will be the 10th open meeting since I took office. So we are continuing to, to work together, even though we're doing so remotely, and I think overall, it's, it's made us stronger together. And your point on enhanced communication is so important. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work internationally at the Treasury Department, but dealing with international regulatory counterparts, you know, so much of diplomacy is about face-to-face meetings, as you mentioned, and the development of trusted relationships with your foreign counterparts. And you came into this job with great deep relationships already with a lot of your international colleagues. But how has that been uh, proceeding uh, as far as coordination and advancing the priorities of the CFTC with the international authorities that you oftentimes would get together with at IOSCO events and otherwise? No, thank you for that question. I mean, it's interesting because when I came in, I I think I may be the the only chairman out of the 14 to actually come in with a stronger international background than domestic background. So I spent the first six months on the job, really focusing domestically, particularly on those core aspects of the derivatives markets like energy and agriculture, where I did not have a background in. Um, but what, what has happened is as a result of, of the pandemic, just like domestically, I find myself talking far more frequently on a daily basis with all the division directors and even you know several times a week with the commissioners, including one-on-ones with them once a week, Um, we've actually increased the frequency of us talking to international counterparts. There was a period where literally almost every day I had to set the alarm for 6 6 a.m. or very early to get on a 6.45 or 7 a.m. conference call because the CFTC was involved in IOSCO board calls. We set up a new IOSCO group that uh, the CFTC is co-chairing with the French AMF to look at systemic risk issues. We also are involved with the SCAVs work stream of the Financial Stability Board. And as a result, literally, we're finding ourselves having multiple calls a day with our international counterparts far more frequently than we did prior to the crisis. And and, and I think it has been helpful that a lot of my international counterparts I already knew while at Treasury. So therefore, even though I don't see them face to face, we have a couple of years together working closely, like, for example, with the European Commission, where now I can just pick up the phone and, and we don't necessarily need to be together. It will be great to get back 
and, and to fly back over to Spain for IOSCO to fly to Basel. Um, but until that time, uh, we're trying to make up for it using bilateral and multilateral phone calls with our international counterparts. And we've worked together quite well. And, and not to forget, but, you know, this coronavirus happened during a, a tremendously uh, important time when the, Britain had just left, left the EU, um, you know, and there was a lot of discussions about how, you know, the financial center of, of Europe could uh, be regulated outside of Europe. Um, and there was a lot of discussions about how third country regulation would work and um, that also was impacting the U.S. Um, in particular around CCPs and how uh, Europe might oversee systemically important CCPs. So sometimes these moments of crisis, sort of the, 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 the smaller items fall to the wayside and it's able to bring people together on issues more than had the, the crisis not happened. So I'm just curious, I know this is proceeding and we're coming out of crisis mode, but any update on the Amir 2.2 issue and, and whether the Europeans are going to come out with something that makes sense from a third party regulation standpoint from a U.S. perspective? Yeah, I remain very optimistic. And, and although I think our, our time and attention has been focused first and foremost on addressing issues in the markets and volatility related to coronavirus, the overall issue with Amir 2.2 has remained at the forefront of my agenda, certainly and the Europeans as well. And so I'm optimistic that that we will re that we can we can get to a yes that is is mutually beneficial that is a win-win uh, relationship that that allows uh, the CFTC to maintain its you know its supervisory authority and regulation with respect to US clearing houses and at the same time gives insight and and cooperation to our counterparts in Europe, and we do the same for them. So, so while we're talking about Amir 2.2 and they're working on their implementing draft, we are also uh, working to finalize, uh, hopefully by, by June, our approach to cross-border CCP supervision, at least it's an embodied in sort of an alternative registration framework, so we can recognize comedy and deference uh, to our European counterparts when they are applying rules that are the equivalent of ours. And so it's it's a two-way street, comedy and deference. And, and you know, I'm hopeful that we're working to a place where again, we can find a win-win solution because I think, you know, we there are fellow regulators in Europe. Uh, they have the same concerns that we do, but ultimately we want to work together in a cooperative way. And we want our derivatives markets to remain, you know, robust, resilient, and have the same kind of integrity that, that all of us care about. Well, and FI certainly supports your efforts on finding the, that right balance of appropriate deference uh, when, when it's needed. Um, so we appreciate you taking a leadership role on that third-party regulation regulation issue, um, and we're we're here to support that that advancement in the months to come. So so thank you for that. Um, you did mention agriculture, and um, you know that is an issue that you you admitted that you know wasn't your strong suit coming into the job, but you have. You have dove into that topic um, you know, head first and really gotten up to, to speed on it. And in fact, you chaired the Ag Advisory Committee recently with the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. So the CFTC at the at the core of its mission is making sure you know, commodities are, are properly risk managed. So how are you working uh, with the Department of Agriculture to make sure that the concerns around the ag markets in these volatile times are being addressed appropriately? 
Yeah, and 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 Walt, you know, you mentioned how important agriculture is because you know you headed the agency for a period, and you know that we trace our heritage back uh, through agricultural commodities because these markets were the first derivatives markets, effectively, in the United States, and 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 so as a result of agriculture being effectively the cornerstone of the Commodity Exchange Act, it's something that's always top of mind for me. And there are some issues that ag is particularly concerned about, namely the widespreads between cash and futures prices on some livestock contracts. So we've been looking at that in particular very closely to ensure these markets continue to function properly. Um, and, and of course, without misconduct. And one of the things we did is to create the Livestock Market Task Force. And, and, and with that task force, we've been working very closely uh, with the Department of Agriculture us sharing some of our data with them on the futures markets, them sharing some of their data with us on the cash markets, um, so we can really get an integrated picture of what's happening out in America's heartland. And Secretary Perdue has been tremendous in his leadership at USDA, and we've also looked at various agricultural state groups, um, and especially groups like the Farm Bureau, for example. You know, in the, in the volatility in these times, not only affecting ag markets, but other physical commodity markets, in particular, we had a really unique uh, situation a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, you appeared on CNBC to address the negative pricing in uh, the CME's WTI crude oil contract. You know, this has gotten a lot of attention. I think, you know, the normal people who, who tune into the news can't understand how a physical commodity can be a negatively priced how that's even possible. So um, I saw where you were talking about this on CNBC, but you know, a lot of people, the narrative has gone a couple directions. You know, some have said, well, this is a broken market. And others have said, you know, this is a normal but rare outcome of supply and demand when you have an imbalance. So where does the chairman of the CFTC stand? Well, first of all, on the bigger picture, can commodity prices ever go negative? Um, and I think the answer to that has to be yes. Um, and, and the reason is, is because you can have an asset that is worth something, but if you have attendant liabilities to that asset that ultimately are higher, so in this example, storage cost, then you can have a situation where immediately when you purchase something, it can be negative. Now, again, very rare, but I think what we see in the oil markets is a situation where we've got dramatically reduced demand, right? You basically have put two thirds of the world's economy on hold. And as a result, the demand for oil uh, has dramatically reduced. At the same time, we see substantial supply. Uh, we see it obviously with, with the, the, what happened with Saudi Arabia and Russia increasing their supply. But as a result of the demand side, not taking all that oil, we have our supply stocks continuing to, to rise. I spoke with an analyst yesterday and he mentioned that the biggest time, the, the last time we've seen such a great increase in supply of oil, uh, a glut of oil, so to speak, was in the wake of the global financial crisis. But to get to that level of oil in supply, in, in, in storage, it took 12 to 15 months. Well, we've seen that same amount in 12 to 15 weeks. So we have this, 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 this confluence of dramatically decreased demand, increased supply, uh, as well as tightening of storage. And, and so all of those factors together 
um, can lead to a situation where commodity prices are negative, particularly in this instance, oil. Um, now, oil went negative only for a short period, and, and a very small minority of the trades occurred during that period. But I think the important thing to say, and this is something that many traders um, had, had, had thought about in advance, certainly the exchanges did, that you can have a situation because of supply and demand and fundamental factors where a commodity does trade at a negative rate. Now that said, again, the specifics of what happened on that day, and particularly April 20th, is something that we're looking closely at. So, so the, the magnitude of the drop, the volatility, the way that it occurred, and, and, and the time horizon are things that we're looking at very carefully, just so we can fully understand what happened. So I, I would divide it as sort of the, there's the macro issue of can a commodity ever be negative? I think the answer is yes. Um, but, but what specifically happened with the WTI contract on that day, April 20th, is something that we're still looking into uh, in close detail. And I think that's important to, to educate folks on because the CFTC has two roles, making sure that supply and demand are, are factors that are, are setting the price discovery of these markets, but also to be skeptical, to always look, you know, take the extra step to look and surveil the markets to make sure there's no one so large in the market that could, could manipulate or move prices. And so I would never want you to talk about any enforcement actions, but can you talk a little bit about generally the surveillance program of, this, of the CFTC and how you ensure that you know, no one trader can manipulate a, a, a product and how you oversee those marketplaces for such, such events? Sure. So, so we have both a market intelligence bureau, which is in our Department of Market Oversight, and their job is to really understand day by day, minute by minute, what's going on in our markets. But if they see something in our markets that doesn't make fundamental economic sense, and, and our exchanges, of course, are doing the same thing, then they can refer it to our enforcement division. And our enforcement division also has special tools, tools that I, I really can't go into for obvious reasons, that can also detect things like spoofing and certain forms of market manipulation. And, and they are looking back. Uh, they are looking back at market activity and they're also monitoring in some cases things uh, in real time. And so our enforcement division is always on the job and surveillance. And you may not hear about something until six months later, once we've gathered the evidence that we need to bring, to bring a, an enforcement action. But rest assured, if something, if we detect something is, is potentially wrong in our markets, we will investigate it fully. And if necessary, we'll bring an enforcement action. Well, I just think it's important for the confidence of the markets that they know the policemen's out there looking at this kind of activity. And so it's very helpful to have you explain that and what, what you're doing to oversee the markets. Um, so turning back to the, the, the crisis a bit, I, I do want to compliment you and the commission for quickly acting on uh, relief as the industry shifted from a work uh, to home policy, um, you know, and, and that was, you know, dealing with you know, records and a different variety of things that just weren't possible to do from home or needed some sort of adjustments. So we appreciate the open dialogue that the commission had with the industry and the quick actions to keep the markets open for business. Uh, but, you know, as part of your um, agenda, when you came into office, you also said, you know, I want to make sure that we're not acting on, uh, you know, years old, no action rulemakings, but would rather turn to actual uh, rulemaking process with a, a comment period and, and put it into regulation. 
Um, so, you know, how have you balanced those two things, wanting to make sure there's, there's uh, no action relief that can happen quickly, but also not relying so much on it and, and turning to more long-term regulatory guidance? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And the answer is simply, there is a place for no action letters in, in the CFTC, but they should be where they're temporary and targeted. And so all of our work on no action relief with respect to the coronavirus crisis is time limited and really focused on um, how, how do we allow the markets to maintain an orderly and liquid nature um, during this crisis. And so that has been the focus of our no action relief. Uh, that said, many of the other things that have been in the, in, the, in the queue, in some cases for up to a decade, remain unfinished. And I vowed when I came in at the CFTC that I would finish the job and clean up our docket, uh, get done those things that need to be finished, um, and propose new things that, that have never been proposed but need to be proposed. And so the answer uh, is that the work goes on. And so that agenda that I laid out at FIA last year in Chicago, when you look at the short-term uh, chart, pretty much everything on there we have done or are continuing to do. Um, sure, we've pivoted to market disruptions caused by the coronavirus, um, but the agency is sophisticated enough that I think I think we can quote you know chew gum and walk at the same time. And so, while we focus first and foremost on that, we're not letting the bigger agenda go go by the wayside. And so, again, we're going to have our tenth open meeting later this month. Um, we recently proposed for the first time in 37 years updates to our bankruptcy uh, uh, provisions in Part 190. Um, we also had enhancements of the quarterly reports uh, by CPOs, commodity pools. And so we're continuing to work on this. We're going to hopefully approve an interim final rule, further extending phases five and six of the initial margin requirements for uncleared swaps. We're also going to do a proposal for foreign commodity pools. So all of these things are still planned and we're marching forward. And then we're obviously in terms of final rules, we're aiming to finalize our cross-border proposals for clearing houses, as I mentioned, as well as swap dealers and the long awaited capital rule. All of those things remain on the agenda. And finally, of course, position limits. Uh, and, and to your earlier question about what are we doing on the job, as far as, as making sure people aren't manipulated or no single uh, market participant controls too much, well, obviously position limits are a big part of that. So that remains on our agenda as well. And then finally, um, we, the swap data reporting rules, uh, which, are, which are important to some of your members, uh, those, those will also be finalized in the fall. So we're, uh, we're full speed ahead pretty much on most of the agenda and everything that, that is sort of in the bag uh, waiting to be proposed or has been proposed, my goal is to then pivot and focus on finalizing things. So we don't have a string of things that have been proposed, but we're actually focused on finalizing things. Things that, again, FIA members have waited around for years to see to see come to a conclusion. Well, I have to laugh that uh, you're taking on Part 190 bankruptcy because I think every chairman is approached by staff at the agency to try to clean that up and it's so complicated <laughs> every chairman says no they turn to something else so i commend you for taking on that important but uh, also very complicated topic uh, but it's going to help for times like these this is when you need clarity and bankruptcy and um, it helps our economy get going again so i, I commend you for that 
And, and just to be clear, Walt, uh, this was something that I had listed in October uh, when I visited FIA in Chicago before we even thought about the coronavirus. So it's not that we're anticipating a slew of bankruptcies of, of FCMs and FIA members, but rather um, what I don't want is a situation where if we did have a, you know, insolvency of one or more FCMs, um, they turned around and said, the CFTC, you knew for 37 years, uh, you know, you needed to continue to update your bankruptcy rules and you didn't. Uh, and so my view on that is, look, let's, let's do the responsible thing here. Let's update it. The time, and I think I said this in Chicago to the FIA members, the time to fix your roof is when it's not raining, when it's a sunny day. Uh, so there may be rain, there may not be rain, but we were going to do it anyway, and we're going to continue to move forward. In private law practice, I had worked on the Lehman bankruptcy, the WAMU bankruptcy, and I had also worked as a bank regulatory lawyer on the resolution plans of some of the largest globally systemic banks. So bankruptcy and issues of insolvency have always been kind of an interest to me. So while other chairmen may have said, yeah, I don't know about that, that's actually an area of interest for me. Because I think, you know, the one thing that has always struck me, having gone through uh, the last financial crisis and now encountering these current challenges, is you really don't know how good the system is until it's actually really tested. And so I want to make sure our insolvency regime is up to date so we can guarantee that our customers have the best possible protections. Well, I commend you on it. Like I said, it's 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 a... It's a very difficult topic, but you had great foresight last fall to, to take it on, and, and we're glad you did. So, um, and it sounds like you're full steam ahead on your agenda items. You know, I'm just curious, had the last, you know, eight weeks of, of the crisis, has it exposed any other issues you may want to add to that priority list? No, I, I think for now, um, the priorities remain the priorities. Um, I don't see any that we necessarily need to add. Obviously, with respect to the to the initial margin, we had just finalized our, our first uh, sort of round of, of delaying that. And then when the international community came forward and said, you know what, given everything else that's going on, we don't want to have too much additional burden in terms of operational uh, pressures on, on market participants. So we'll delay it again. So we, we are making an adjustment there. But I think at this point, um, the story is really a good one because the crisis, at least thus far, has shown that uh, our, our, our CCPs as well as our market participants are, are well regulated. And, and the framework that the CFTC has, our principles-based framework, has endured thus far. And, and, and I credit people like you, Walt, who were there you know, 20 years ago or so uh, working and helping make the framework what it is today. And so we've really seen an actual stress test of the system and across the board, it's worked well. One of the things that I guess we're, we're thinking about is that balancing the economic and the public health realities going forward is gonna be difficult because they're fundamentally at odds and it's sort of outside the ambit of the CFTC. Um, but there is this question that in, in time, will we be seeing like what, what have been liquidity concerns uh, ultimately to translate into insolvency concerns, you know, at, at, at the economy as a whole. And so we're keeping a close tab on that. We're working with our other regulators inside the FSOC uh, and our, our international counterparts at the FSB to just get an idea of what could be coming down the pike. But as you mentioned early on, 
our derivatives markets are really the place where people are offloading a lot of the risk that's been brought by coronavirus. And so in many ways, it's so important that they remain open. And I kind of view that as the, as the sole job of the CFTC to some extent, or at least the most important job of the CFTC during this period to make sure our derivatives markets continue to function and that market participants, FIA members, and all of their customers can continue to access these markets. Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, you have one of the more impressive backgrounds of any chairman that we've had at the CFTC. And whether that's your time at Treasury, Senate banking, private practice, clerking uh, at the DC Court of Appeals. And I have jokingly told you, I think at one point that the Supreme Court justice may be your next stop, but but in all seriousness, um, you know, the CFTC is a, is a you know, a important but um, small agency. Um, it, so what originally drew you to the CFTC? Was there a moment in time when the CFTC first caught your attention in your past career that that ultimately brought you back to the CFTC as chairman? No, thank you. Well, first of all, I'm humbled and I am, I am lucky to have this job and I remind myself of that every day. So I'm humbled to be, to be in the footsteps of you and some of the other people that have been in this, this spot. Uh, and I'm very grateful for it. What I tell people is to, to your point about how it's a small agency is that the CFTC is the most important agency, financial regulator, most Americans have never heard of. And the thing that excites me the most about the CFTC is that unlike all the other financial regulators, and I've studied them all, I've appeared before them all, I've worked on their statutes, I've worked on you know, the various legal issues regarding them, is that the CFTC is one of the few, is, is probably the regulator that touches on the most of the US economy. It, every aspect of American life to some extent is touched by the derivatives markets because the derivatives markets, of course, are priced on the underlying cash markets. Whereas banking focuses on banking, securities is securities. When it comes to derivatives, you really have to understand the underlying markets. And that's a challenge that I have every day. I have to understand everything from corn to crypto, right? Uh, we deal with the agriculture markets, the energy markets, the precious metal markets all of the capital markets uh, from, from uh, derivatives on, on the S&P 500 and, and stocks and financial instruments to interest rates, to foreign exchange, uh, to all sorts of things. Uh, and now with uh, the 21st century commodities uh, like Bitcoin and Ether. And so uh, that kind of breadth and depth that the CFTC offers is tremendous and it's continually an exciting learning challenge. And, and there are new things every day some of my other fellow regulators obviously have critically important jobs, but to some extent, you know, the business of banking is, is not too different today than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago with deposit insurance and, and, and deposits and checks and checking accounts. Obviously, fintech plays a role, but, but I don't, the breadth of the, of the CFTC job was something that, that really attracted me to it. I also like the fact that the CFTC historically has not always been sort of uh, mired in, in politics. Um, it's, it's historically been a very collegial commission, um, an expert group of, of staff members. And I have tried to continue that tradition of collegiality among the commissioners, of focusing on the expertise of our members, um, as well as I think the healthy dialogue between uh, the regulator and the regulated participants in the industry. Well, I know, unfortunately, that we're wrapping up on our time together, Heath, but 
Um, you know, I wanted to end with the question, uh, it was where we started and that's talking about the agency itself. Um, you, you personally, you know, came from the treasury department, you've served both in private life and public life. Um, but now you're serving as the chief policymaker for the derivatives industry and the chief executive of a, a company. And I think you noted six or 700 employees at that company. So day to day, and you do a lot of things wearing both those hats day to day, but what, what is the best part of your job as, as chairman of the CFTC? Can you give us a little bit of an uh, insight on what you enjoy the most of, of that job? I enjoy the job the most because we have an industry which is, you know, comprises the FIA membership uh, and, and others, which is really a fascinating industry that underpins our free enterprise system. And so the CFTC's job, sometimes we, of course, as you say, need to be the cop on the beat. Uh, sometimes we need to dictate rules, but ultimately our job is to make sure these markets are soundly regulated so they have integrity, they have resilience and vibrancy. And if they do so, if they have those attributes, it's gonna be better for all FIA members and it's gonna be better for the American people as a whole. And so, so in many ways, I view this as a job which helps facilitate the engine of the American economy and to some extent for the entire world because they also rely on our derivatives markets. And so that's the great challenge and we also have a dedicated staff that is first rate, and, and you know them because you worked with them over the years. And, and I think coming into the agency, seeing that there was definitely um, a thirst for sort of saying, hey, we're the CFTC and we really do matter. And we've been doing a lot of things in the last decade, but now was the time to recommit to our mission and to really think about, look, the Dodd-Frank era is basically over or coming to a close. What does the CFTC want to be for the next 20 years? And, and part of that process was to have the entire agency sit down, give a lot of thought to the strategic intent of the CFTC. And that's why we came up with a new mission statement that I think crystallizes everything that's in the CEA and has been for 80 years or more. But, but, but to, to do it in a very succinct manner that inspires uh, the hundreds of people that work at the CFTC so we can be the global standard for sound derivatives regulation and we can work with industry to improve our markets and these very important products that are used and, and critical for most of American enterprise. Well, I, I appreciate everything that you do for our markets and to serve the public. Um, I know how hard you work and the CFTC staff works you know, evenings and weekends to, to make sure that you're, you're, you're yeah, implementing the mission of the CFTC. So we so appreciate you joining us here today on FIA Speaks. And, and on behalf of our industry, we thank you and the CFTC staff for your service to the public and our markets. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. And I also want to thank our audience for listening today. And as always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIA Speaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice 
to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.